to our study on the life of faith, a life of faith, and we've been looking at a topical study sort of as, well, it's, it's an expositional study, but, but it kind of breaks out into this whole idea of what is faith and walking by faith. We looked at the person of Abraham, and now we're with Abraham's son, Isaac, and last time we were in this was uh, back about two, three weeks ago now, I guess, and we were looking at uh, Isaac and the uh, part of his life in Genesis chapter 25. We covered pretty much all of Genesis 25, and we looked at um, the fact that he was a man that followed after the pattern of his father in many ways, and yet not all the ways and we're going to pick it up here this morning in uh, genesis chapter 26 beginning in verse 1 and we'll look at the outline here in a moment when we do it there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of abraham and isaac went to abimelech king of the philistines and gerar and then the lord appeared to him and said do not go down to egypt Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to you or give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. And the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, She is my sister. For he was afraid to say, She is my wife. Because he thought, Lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah, because she is, a, is beautiful to behold. Now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously she is your wife, so how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I said, Lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. And so Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Father, we thank you for the word of God. And again, as we open it this morning, we would pray you would put it into our hearts. And Lord, may it dwell richly in our hearts and our lives. And we ask that you teach us as only you can. May the Holy Spirit have his way today. In Jesus' name, amen. We come to this uh, part of Genesis chapter 26, and if you're having a little bit of deja vu, uh, it sounds very similar to uh, a same incident that occurred in I- not only in Isaac's life, but previous to that in his father's life, Abraham. And you remember on the account when Abraham and Sarah went down to Egypt, and there they were worried that, um, well, that Sarah was you know, a beautiful woman, and uh, Abram worried that his wife would be taken by another man and he would die in the process. So he's more scared about his own life than his marriage. And he ends up lying. And you come to Genesis chapter 26. And just like father, you have like son in this case. 
There is a lie that is propagated and it's found out just like in his father's life, Abraham's life, a lie was found out and he had to deal with sin that had come into his life. And the, the reality is this, that, uh, and we looked at this part earlier in chapter 25, um, that for Isaac, he received his father's inheritance. And then secondly, he prayed to his father's God. Okay, And that was important. Isaac was a believer. He was someone that had followed after the God of his father, Abraham, the one true God, the Lord. And it's possible, and it's very possible, because it does happen. Believers don't always walk with the Lord in the commandments of God. They disobey, just like Abraham had done, so his son did also. And I'm thankful for the grace of God. We sang that hymn today, wonderful grace of God, right? Grace of the Lord. And really, grace is when he gives us something that we don't deserve. And the very blessings of Abraham, the very blessings that were passed on to Isaac and the seed of that whole family, which has blessed the earth, because out of that family would come the Messiah, Jesus Listen, it's a family of sinners, and if it wasn't for the grace of God, we would all be condemned in our sin, and the mercy of God which is extended to us. Well, this part, the part we read today, we see this, if you want your outline, he faced his father's temptations. And that's the reality that, really, as Solomon once put it, there's nothing that is new under the sun. The same temptations that our ancestors faced, we faced. We, we, might, we might face them a little bit different in a different culture, different world, but right boiled down to what they really are, they're the same temptations. And those temptations are there. And we're going to look at a couple ways that Isaac was tempted, and in many ways he failed the test, although he didn't fail entirely because he does repent. And that's really the ultimate a goal is that we repent of sin. There's nobody without sin. Isaac was no exception. Neither was Abram or Abraham, his father. And we see that. Really what goes around comes around. Abraham Lincoln said, we cannot escape history. And the Bible, you know, is filled with the history of people. And I have shared that with, uh, sometimes uh, we've had these discussions, very deep discussions with people. Sometimes people that don't really believe the Bible, but they criticize the Bible. And they say, well, after all, in the Bible, we see these things happen. People like Isaac lied. Uh, or they'll usually come up with some other, uh, other thing and they'll say, why is it that Solomon had more than one wife? Oh, boy, that's a big one. Does that mean everybody should have another wife? And I won't even go there, okay? I'm not uh, getting in trouble early on. No, it was not so in the beginning, right? Because Solomon took many women, the Bible says it turned his heart from God. He was distracted in a temptation in his life. And he had access to that and all of those things. And the Bible reveals the history of sinners and the story of God's redemption of sinners, And you and I are in that long line of sinners. And we are in need of redemption. Well, we're going to look at uh, some things here. And the first thing we see in Isaac's life is that he he was tempted to run. The Bible opens up here in chapter 26. There was a famine in the land. And the uh, the writer here distinguishes it between, because it's so similar to the previous part in, for instance, in um, 
chapter 12 of Genesis and also chapter, to chapter 13, you, you read about a famine that arrived in Canaan. And it's, it reads so similar, you'd almost think I must be in the wrong chapter. But he says, beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. Very similar in that it comes. And by the way, famines come and go. Sometimes we think uh, falsely, because as Americans generally in this generation, we've lived very prosperous lives. But you go back just to one generation prior to us, or two maybe, uh, my grandparents' generation. Uh, my grandmother on my mom's side grew up in the Depression, so did my, my grandparents on my father's side. They lived very different lives, that's for sure. My grandmother on my mother's side, uh, her father uh, just left them and just walked away and abandoned his family. And my great-grandmother was left to raise her children in a time of depression. And they almost starved to death, literally. And I remember just talking about stories of that. And we think maybe we've been far removed from famine because we haven't experienced something similar in our life, or most people, at least in America, have not experienced that in their life, uh, in their lifetime, in modern times anyways. And the reality is this, that we're never too far from those kind of things. And they come. And there are great temptations that arise, whether it be through a famine or whether it be through some other means of tempting the world has its ways of doing that and trying us and bringing us uh, into it. By the way, God tempts us. The Bible talks about giving us trials and the Lord being somewhat allowing those trials to come. The book of James talks about that. And by the way, God always, uh, if God is going to try us or bring something into our life, it is not to bring sin out into our life, but to bring better out, in our, to stand God will always do that. His trials are such that they produce goodness in us. Satan's temptations are such that if we yield to them, it always brings sin. There's a difference. And the Bible talks about those things. For Isaac, this trial comes in his life, and their first temptation is to run to Egypt. Egypt was the world power of the day. Egypt was the bed of civilization of that day. It was the place where there was food. It was a rich Nile Delta where you had all these people living in the farmlands and all the things happening. And here he is out there and there's a famine in the land of Canaan. And he thinks, well, if I just go to Egypt. And the funny, not funny, the irony in that is that if you know the history of the family, of Isaac right now that was always a call the the Jews were always had their eyes it seems like generation after generation on Egypt Egypt is a picture of the world it is a type it is a shadow of things and by the way the world always has its lure and luster and it always is tempting the believer to go and trust its system as opposed to God's ways which is a life of faith and we find that this is the same uh, instance in uh, the days of, of Isaac. It says, And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. So he moves from the place he had been before. In uh, I, I have it written down in here. But he went from the well in that area in chapter 25. And he moves about 75 miles northeast from Bir Lahorai uh, all the way up to Gerar, 
the city in the Philistine territory. Now, by the way, that was still within the scope of the land that God had promised Abraham. And so he's not moved out of that. Now, I would say this, so long as the Lord is in that, there's nothing wrong with doing that. And he goes that way. But we know that he, his mind was to go instead, eventually, to Egypt. Because the very next verse says, Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. This is important because God saw the mind of Isaac. Where does temptation start? It starts in our mind, doesn't it? And, you know, I may not be able to look at you and know what's going through your mind right now. Sometimes our actions kind of give that away. But... Uh, I can tell you this, that there is one who does know your mind. He knows it better than you, and that's the Lord. He's omniscient. He knows all things. And by the way, he's the only one that knows all things. Even angels, even fallen angels, don't know what's going through your mind. They, they have to look at your actions the same as I do. And God saw right through the mind of Isaac, and he said, Isaac, don't do it. Don't run to Egypt. There's always a temptation to run. He says instead, dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you. And that was the promise that was given to Abraham, wasn't it? The Abrahamic covenant. God made a covenant and said to Abraham, if you you abide with me, you stay with me, you trust me, you follow me by faith, I will bless you. But not only you, I will make you prosperous and I will bless you with the fruit of your your seed. In other words, uh, the... The, the children that would come from your relation with Sarah are going to be so many, they're innumerable. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And look what it says. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Now, I say that that's part of the promise or the land that he was told to dwell in. And he's there. Now, he's not living at the same location he had been before. And some would argue maybe there was a lack of trust. He was sort of taking the... The lesser of two evils. He was going to the city of Gerar where Abimelech was in the, Phil- in the Philistine territory. And he was relying on that. But he wasn't going to Egypt. So it was sort of a partial obedience. And that could be. Or he could have just been permitted to live in that part of the world. It wasn't something that um, he was not walking by faith. And by the way, often when the Lord... Um, when the, when the Lord, excuse me, I'm just going to turn this on because I think it's going to get a little warm in here if it doesn't. If I freeze you out, I'm not trying to. We'll do this one too. There we go. Uh, sometimes we don't fully obey, do we? There are times when we instead say, well, I can go sit on the fence, so to speak. Well, if you sit on the fence, beware because you may fall off the wrong side of the fence, Right? And then you're in trouble. And that seems to be what happens in Isaac's life because he goes there and he ends up getting caught up in a lie. 
and he was in fear. Instead of really trusting the Lord to take care of him, he instead becomes fearful. And often our fears cause us to run, don't they? Very much so. And I have to, you have to be careful with that. Well, as I said earlier, that um, temptations come, trials come, and they produce often, as according to the book of James, um, they really produce in our life, if we pass the test anyways, a patience and a perseverance. One of the things of the generation that came out of the Great Depression, or even any other great event that took place in our history, uh, they came out stronger. Um, they came out with a bigger perspective on the important things, right? Than sometimes those that didn't experience that. And we find that that's the way um, trials happen. James, in the book of James, in the New Testament, it says here in verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Do you know there's reward for those who endure temptation? And I would dare say that's a reward offered to anybody. Anybody, all right? Because all have temptations. Even the Lord Jesus Christ had temptations here on this earth, yet without sin. Big difference. The very first thing we see in the ministry of the Lord while he was here on earth, his public ministry, is he's baptized in the Jordan. And then the very next scene is he's led out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. And while he's there fasting 40 days, Satan comes and tempts him. We'll talk about that in a moment. Because I believe that's very important because the very first private act that the Lord Jesus did that involved, you know, after his public declaration, is a time where he was attacked for who he was at his very core. And yet he passed the test. And he has the same tools that we do. And I praise him for that. Goes on to say, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And that's the difference, what I was talking about. Though... There are times when you read, like in the book of Job, where Job has these awful trials that befall him, where he loses his wealth, he loses his children in a collapse of a building, he loses the relationship of his wife because she wants to have him curse God and die, and then he loses his health. You say all that takes place, and if you read the very beginning of that, we find that, yes, Satan was at work doing that, but it was God who told Satan, have you considered my servant Job? See, God saw beyond all that evil that came his way, and he saw Job on the other side of that, a man that would endure temptation. And the wonderful story of Job is that everything was restored twofold in his life. Everything later on. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's always the pattern. And if we don't repent, it always leads to that sort of trial that goes on. And, and that's, that's the, the, way, the wages of sin, isn't it? He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. 
Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation or his creatures. And, you know, God has a way of working out his plan through us to bring truth to a world that is also facing the same temptations. And when we can rise above those by his truth and his strength and by his spirit, it's amazing what can, be, what can happen. We have to learn faith. And part of the walk of faith is to walk when we are tempted and to walk when we are tried and not just to run away in fear or run to the temptation. In the book of Romans, in that part on the the justification chapter, that's what I call it, you know, therefore having been justified by faith, that's a position, by the way, that occurs when you trust the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's a legal declaration, justified. It means that your sin, if you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you've turned to Him, it means your sin is taken off your account and put on Him. The guilty for the innocent. The unholy for the holy. And that's what justification means. But then there's an aspect of what we call sanctification. Sanctification is a walking of that. And living in the light of of justification. And sanctification is a little different. Because though you may legally be forgiven your sins. Because he accomplished it at the cross. And when it was finished it was done. He paid for sin in full. Yet to walk with him requires a daily turning to him and trusting him right we have to walk by faith and not by sight for isaac he was walking by sight he saw the the crops had dried up and it was a famine and it didn't look good the future was hopeless in his world and he didn't look beyond that world i'm there sometimes too often where i start looking around and i think where are we going and listen my friends Even people who don't even hold to the Bible today, they are also looking and they're seeing the same world and they they have a lot less hope (laughs) because they're thinking, "I, I don't know where this is going. It doesn't look good. Lawlessness abounding and all kinds of things happening. And My Bible tells me that's, if indeed these are the days before His coming, which someday He's coming. Listen, lawlessness will abound before those days. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, should be our prayer. But for the unbeliever who doesn't hold to these things and doesn't know God's word, can you imagine how scary it is? It's a fearful time to live. For the believer, sure, it's fearful, but it shouldn't drive us. It should drive us anything to our knees to rely on him. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, in trials, in temptations. That word is used as such. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. Listen, you would not have the hope of heaven if this world didn't drive you in that direction. 
In many ways, the comforts of the modern life have stripped us of that desire to look beyond this life. And nevertheless, it's going to catch up. Might have a good, healthy life, and all of a sudden, health issue comes. It's going to. Somebody's, you know, death is coming. It's a universal thing. Are you ready for that? And the trials of this life produce that perseverance and that perseverance character and character hope. Hope in Him. Oh, I'm so thankful for that. When trials come, we may be tempted to run away. And I will say this for the believer who is on mission, who is, has a purpose, who has their eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we live differently than the world that is around us. I think of the contrast, like we've been looking through some of the psalms and the, the imprecatory psalms on Sunday night. We've been doing that study. We still have a few more of those to go through. But there's some wonderful verses in those. And one of those in Psalm 55, uh, David praise this and the trials were all around him and and his life was hanging in the balance in so many ways and he's on the run and he says oh that i had wings like a dove that i would fly away and be at rest sometimes that's our cry oh i just want to get out of here but sometimes god doesn't want us out of here like that's the case with david david at that time when he's saying that and praying that singing that it's a song He's saying, oh, that I could just get out of this world. My troubles are so much. But then David is brought back to his trust in the Lord. Read that psalm. It's a wonderful psalm. A dove. Be like a dove. Think about that. The dove is a very, well, it's an emblem of peace. And here's a morning dove. We have those around here. And and they're just little soft birds. They wouldn't harm a flea. They eat seeds, but you know, they're birds that, are, that know what it's like to be in the prey, in the, as, as prey. Birds uh, who everything around them is out to get them. David felt like that, but he said, oh, I could be like a dove that would just fly away and be at rest. In reality, the dove doesn't rest. <laughs> it doesn't. You know, God doesn't want us just to be a dove. He didn't want David just to be a dove. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, it says, But those who wait on the Lord, and you can add in that wait during trials and temptations and the evils that beset us, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God wants us to be like eagles. By the way, I've watched doves and I've watched eagles. And they're different birds. An eagle soars with purpose. An eagle is designed for that. It's a bird of prey. It's always looking out and it's looking at great distances sometimes. Eagles have, have uh, their, their lenses and their eyes are actually such that they can see near and far at the same time. Unique in the animal kingdom. Birds of prey. And the eagle is watching for what he can eat (laughs) he's always seeking out there soaring with purpose the dove well they're on to this and then something goes boo and they all fly away right and they don't know where they're going god wants us to be like eagles who soar 
And there's a difference when somebody has a purpose in their life. I've been reading a, a book, and I just finished it this past week, called The Mission, The Men, and Me by Pete Blaber. Excellent book. Pete Blaber was a um, commander with Delta Force, uh, elite special forces with the U.S. military. And just before the 9-11 events that took place here in our country in 2001, back in the spring of that, uh, that year, before they knew where they would be going and all those different things, they were training as, as the Delta Force and other special forces operators do, always training. And they had sat down and, and uh, looked at their intelligence reports and situational things, and they determined that the next war, wherever it is, is going to be in mountains. And they looked at several regions of the world where there were hot spots. And in every one of those, they would have to be involved probably in mountain kind of warfare. And so they decided they would train hard for that. And they decided to go to the most part of the, part of the United States that was probably the most hostile mountain range that they could traverse. And they went to a place in Montana, a hundred mile stretch called the Bob. All right, I don't know, the Bob. Must be a real mean name, you guys back there named Bob. I don't know. But that's, uh, it was named after somebody who, uh, of the past, that, uh, in the past. So what they did is they decided they would go up and sort of reconnoiter and figure out from the local people who lived in that area, in the National Park area, um, exactly how, you know, what they should look for and all that. Now, when they do this, they go sort of undercover. They didn't wear military uniforms. They dressed like backpackers. They had some pretty specialized equipment. And what they had planned to do is go and get some information, and then they would come back a couple months later in the month of June, and they would traverse that 100-mile stretch of wilderness. Now, the only thing about that is that in June, in Montana, in the high mountains, there's still lots of snow, sometimes up to 12 feet deep in the passes. And most would consider it impossible to traverse 100 miles in that kind of condition. But they're special forces. They're going to do that. So they went and they stopped at a little cafe. They got out these five men that were Delta Force operators and they got out wearing flannel shirts and you know those kind of things. And, and they got in the little cafe and they sat there and they began to ask people questions about the mountain and is it possible to get through it in June and one after another said no not in June you have to wait at least till July before you can actually pass up there it's just too dangerous and it's it's, the stability of the snow all that it's just almost impossible and we can't see that you guys could do that certainly one after the other gave that kind of a report there was one man, he was sitting over by a table by himself, and he was just taking it in. An older guy, about, he was actually about 60 years old, but he looked like a fit 40-year-old. And he's just sitting there. And after everybody else in the place was done talking and giving their little bit, and these guys uh, with Delta Force were just eating, and this man looked over at Pete Blaber, and he said, can I add my two cents? And he said, Sure. And he looked at him and he said this. He says, I've I've had my eye on you guys since you arrived in the parking lot. And he says, you know, most backpackers around here, they eat fruits and nuts and they, they walk around, you know, real slow. They don't really have any intended purpose to go. He said, they're nice enough people and all. But he said, I've been watching you guys. 
You ain't no regular backpackers. He says, you move. And he said this. He says, you're meat eaters. <laughs> and Pete Blaber looked down and every one of them had burgers. <laughs> and he says, you move. Everything you do, you move with purpose. And the man stuck his hand out <clears throat> and he said, I'm Walter. And he says, I reckon you're military. And Pete Blaber reached out and shook his hand, reached down and said, I reckon you're right. And Walter said, Special Forces, 66 to 68, Vietnam. It takes one to know one. And you know, found out later that Walter was a recipient of the Silver Star, a lot of other things. The man was who he said he was. But he recognized that those men, when they stepped out into the parking lot even and began to unload their gear and move around and get in the restaurant and everything, that they were on a mission and there wasn't anybody going to stop them. By the way, Walter told them, you can get through that in June. And they did. It's a neat story. And of course, they were some of the first ones on the ground in Afghanistan in uh, October and November of 2001 when the U.S. went to hunt down um, al-Qaeda uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a good story it's true but I took that out of there saying you know you're meat eaters <laughs> in other words you're on mission you're soaring like an eagle and there's a difference between an eagle and a dove and my friends for the Christian for the believer we ought to be on mission we ought to be going forth we ought to be looking ahead we ought to always be even in the trials of things and when when man says it's impossible to stand in such a generation with all its perverseness you can stand and say no it's possible to stand because someone else has done it Jesus has done it well there's always a temptation to run and I will say this, as long as you're running for the Lord, it's okay, but not running from the Lord, right? The second temptation in the last verses of this is, there was a temptation to lie. And I will say this, these are two big temptations in anyone's life, and there are temptations in my life. There are probably temptations in your life as well, to not be truthful, or not to stand when we should you know, or not, you know, and, and instead we, we're running instead of standing firm where God has planted us. Those kind of things. We'll pick it up again, Genesis 26, verse 7. And the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, She is my sister. For he was afraid to say, She is my wife, because he thought, Lest the men of the place kill me for Rebecca, because she is beautiful to behold. The fear of losing. His own life gripped him. So much so, here he puts his wife in danger. Men, we can do some very bad things and bad choices when we're driven by our fears. And I'll just say this, that's, that's the opposite of faith. Now God worked it out, and I'm glad that Abimelech was more really righteous in his thinking than at this time Isaac was. By the way, sometimes... The world around us that do not know God sometimes have better morals than some believers. That's sad. shouldn't be that way, but it does. It happens. The temptation to lie. Now it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and he saw 
And there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. <laughs> Man looks through his window and says, that's not his sister. No, that's his wife. He knew. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously she is your wife, so how could you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. <laughs> he didn't want to die. I'll tell you, that's, that's not a good, uh, as far as, he, he didn't want to die on account of her. He'd rather have his wife taken by another man than to lose his own life. Oh, what selfishness. By the way, fear drives us to selfish decisions. And you say, I would never do that. Well, you might if you're put in that place and you're not trusting God. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. He recognized that it was wrong for a married woman to be taken by one of his men and, you know, all the things that go with that. Anyways, he knew it was wrong. Abimelech knew it was wrong. And yet, Isaac somehow had lost that. His moral compass was uh, askew. It's easy to lose that. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. You know, in the end, the things that Isaac feared didn't come to pass. And you'd think if, you know, Abimelech would have been so angry, I mean, and you're afraid that he's already going to be, you know, taking your life, and now he finds out you've lied to him, surely I'm a dead man. And it wasn't that case. And I just have to say this, God prepared the heart of Abimelech. We don't, the Bible doesn't say it specifically like that, but obviously the sovereign God who moves in the affairs of life, the big things and the small things, had in the conscience of Abimelech made it such that when he found out about this, he actually gave an order to protect life and to protect Isaac and Rebekah. God can do that. Sometimes we think, uh, you know, we see no human way out of a situation. Well, there probably isn't a human way out of that situation, but there's a God way. God does that. It doesn't mean that you lie. Truth, and English poet John Dryden said this, Truth is the foundation of all knowledge and the cement of all societies. And, and I wish I could park myself here for a while, but uh, I will say it this way, that we're in a world today where truth is suspect and that it is very relative in people's thinking. My truth, your truth, right? Instead of truth. <laughs> truth stands apart from us. And the word of God is truth, isn't it? And today, our society is in the midst, I think, of a spiral downward because people aren't being truthful. We can handle a lot of things if we know the truth of it. When you stand in a society and the politicians who resent you, resent you, represent you, and they do resent you too, but they represent you, uh, and, and, and I have to say this, in many ways they are representative of our people where we are. In many ways. And they'll sit there, though the facts say something entirely different, and lie to you. And they'll lie and lie and lie. And there are consequences to that, by the way. There's consequences for me and you and everybody else because 
you're going to go down. It's a whitewash. It's like going to buy a, a building and you look at that building and it has a fresh coat of paint on it. It's great, but inside the timbers are rotten. And that's what lying does at best. It just puts a whitewash on the outside. Truth is the cement. Falsehood is the whitewash. And actually Phillips Brooks, uh, who was an American preacher, said that years ago. First John chapter 1, verse 8, he writes there, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. One of the things of dealing with this whole aspect of truth and sin is that we have to start with ourselves. You see, you have to look at the man in the mirror and the woman in the mirror and say, how am I living today? Is what you're looking at truthful? Is what you're confessing with your lips, the actions of the heart, do they represent the two things? God knows already, doesn't he? He knows all things. Truth. How about for the preacher? Oh boy. For a moment I've got to preach it myself. Because this is important. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes to young Timothy who was a pastor. And he says to Timothy, a pastor at Ephesus. He says that you ought to be a workman who is approved of God. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Now I want to use Isaac as a, as a backdrop to that. When Abimelech finds out he's been lied to, Isaac's been exposed. At that point, he was not a good worker for God. He had to hang his head with shame. That scares me. And it ought to scare all of us. Because in us is the capability of doing the worst things if we're not trusting the Lord. That's why we need to follow the Lord daily. And by faith. Follow him. Believe in his word. Keep the word of truth in our hearts. And that's what he says. Rightly dividing the word of truth. It's possibly to wrongly divide the word of truth. See, this book is true whether I preach heresy or not. The book is true. I better be preaching what's according to the book. And the problem is there are people out there, they grab this book and they... They pick and choose things and they say, well, uh, I like this verse. I don't like that verse. I can preach on that. I won't do that one. Well, this one's not very popular. I'm, I'm going to take that whole page right out. And that's how they come to it. And you know what? That's when we all get in trouble. It weakens the foundation of the church. It weakens the foundation of society. There's a lot the Bible has to say about truth and the word of truth, which is the Bible itself, is the undergirding of all of us. It is truly the foundation for the believer. Isaac knew the word of God. Matter of fact, I often wonder if he had the same thought Abraham had because Abraham had told him, boy, don't do what I did. And then shared about what he had done when he was afraid in the same situation I don't know, maybe it was just another temptation that came up and it was the same, but, but we do know it's recorded in the Word of God. Sometimes we're tempted those ways. Look, Ephesians chapter 6, we have here the armor of God. And I, I believe that every believer, every Christian today can stand firm in a world where Satan is hurling his darts 
and he's looking for those he can devour. Paul writes here, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. By the way, you can't put on the whole armor of God unless you accept the whole truth. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word to stand there is a military term. It is a term that says that I will stand in the face of an overwhelming enemy and not be moved. And it pictures there the Roman soldier, an infantryman standing firm together, interlocked with their shields. And you know, history says that they were so good at that that even it would would thwart a, a, a horse charging them. You can imagine a a big horse, about a 1,200-pound horse or something like that coming at you, and you could stand firm against overwhelming power because you were more powerful. We have the Lord. He says that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. You see that word? Withstand, stand, right? The picture, the image is to take that posture of being able to be victorious. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Where does it begin? Truth. In the picture, imagery, the metaphor he's using here is of a soldier putting on his armor and the first thing here is to stand with the gird of truth, to put the belt of truth, right? And I won't go on with the rest, but having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And that is the way we stand. It has to be in truth, though. I mentioned earlier and I I end with this but you remember I said how do you stand in a world where there's these temptations that come at you from so many different ways and I believe the scriptures point that out very much as in the life of Jesus and in particular the account of the what we often call the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness now Jesus was not able to sin. He was God the Son. And yet Satan still came and tried to tempt him. And I think ultimately it was for the purpose of our well-being that we could see that Jesus will never let you down. That he is the real deal. He will never sin. And you can trust a Savior like that. Luke chapter 4 verse 1, Then Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. In those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when he, they, they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. There's the first question. If you are the Son of God. How about the doubts that come? Have you ever had those kind of doubts? Is God really God? Does he really care for me? Is he going to save me? Am I going to get to heaven? Those are, those are doubts that come. And, and you know what? The gird your waist and the loins of your mind with the truth. 
But Jesus answered him saying, look what he says, it is written. He quotes from the Bible. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Second lie the devil comes along is that the devil is the most important, that Satan himself is more important than God, and that he has authority in this realm, all authority. And I'll say, no, he doesn't, because the Bible tells me that. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is what? Written. Goes to the Bible. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only. You shall serve. Jesus goes to the Bible. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. Now the devil's using the Bible against Jesus. He's, he's realizing, hmm, this, this man, this, this one, he's quoting the Bible. I'll use the Bible. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, and he quotes again from the Bible, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You know what? Jesus just answers the devil with the same tool that I have. The word of God. The truth. And when we push back with the truth, it dispels the darkness. And Satan must flee. And that's exactly what happens there. He fled. Satan did. Why is that story even in the Bible? Why is it that we would need to know something that privately took place in the life of Jesus? Because in our private lives, we face very similar temptations And you know what? He's still God and he has the truth and he wants it in our hearts and lives. Do you know him as your savior? If you don't, you don't have that part of the armor that not only delivers you from your sin, but also helps you to stand against temptations and trials. You don't have that hope. Repent and turn to Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what the Bible says. Are you a believer that has, has not been trusting him? Maybe you're like Isaac in that moment of his life where he had a great temptation before him and he was afraid and it got him in trouble. I'm thankful though the grace of God, right? And we repented. And today we have the rest of the story, don't we? Let's pray. Lord, again, thank you for your book. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the truth. We thank you for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.